This week on Waxing the Porpoise, G-Baby and the Usual Suspect Steve welcome a very special guest and friend of the show, dad of the show, aka the Usual Suspect Senior, Steve's dad, or simply Tom, for what is sure to be a two-parter. Join us as we discuss the Tom father's time as a medic and firefighter before ultimately joining the police academy and then hitting the streets. Along the way, he'll share some fun and insane stories which really illustrate how crazy of a job being a cop truly is. Do you have any idea how hard it is to subdue someone high on PCP? And what the hell is that smell? Be sure to stay tuned for Volume 2 where we'll discuss his later career, including his time in the Secret Service. Let's wax his paternal porpoise. Chase, don't do that. Lion face. Ah, lemon face. Ooh. All right. Welcome to Waxing the Porpoise. We are back again. Episode 53. This is a very special episode. I'm excited to, to get into. We actually, this is going to be similar to kind of an interview style, I suppose, when we had Richard on previously with the Coors Light Chronicles. I haven't come up with a, a fancy name yet, so we're just going with Steve's dad, episode 53, and we'll see We'll see what shakes out of that, but yeah, we're I'm excited to have Steve's uh, father on, and we're gonna wrap uh, for the next little bit. So, introduce ourselves here. You got myself as always, Jim G. Baby. It's just been revoked. And of course, the usual suspect, Steve. Look, he's waving. Hey, he's just your old man. He's as full of shit as anybody. Hey, what's going on? Breathing through the wrong fucking eyelid again? No, shut up. <laughs> How's it going, man? Doing good. Dad, have you ever seen uh, Bull Durham? No, I haven't. Oh, that's a good one. It is good. But I will say, I do get my general lack of interest in movies from this guy here. So This yes. is where it stems from? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You think it I comes seen by it naturally. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. We're, Steve and I are, can be polar opposites in some ways, uh, and movies is definitely one of them. Which is kind of was the impetus for this whole show to begin with. So I, I have watched The Godfather, though, Jim. I can tell you that. Okay, well, there that's solid ground there. At least we can. <laughs> that's one major classic that we won't hold against you. Um, uh, and then special guest this evening, Steve's father, Tom. Yes. I hereby sentence you, Michael Bolton, to a term of no less than four years in a federal. <laughs> happy to be here awesome yeah nice. it's it's great to have you that was a special request steve's steve told me that story when we were working together that that was the hardest he'd ever seen his dad laugh was that that clip from office space yeah it like scared me i can still remember sitting <laughs> that, like the laugh that came out i'd never heard before it just it just hit him just right and it did it's a funny part. So I, you knew you knew that was coming already. Yeah, when you said you had a special <laughs> clip, I knew exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, that is yeah. a funny movie. I, I have a similar thing with uh, my. I've told before, but my grandfather. I hadn't seen him laugh very many times in my life up to this point, and I happened to sit down one time, and he was watching an old rerun of Saturday Night Live, and it was when Dana Carvey was impersonating Julia Child. 
And and when she was chopping the carrots, she just chopped her fingers off and blood started spurting and she acted like nothing was, and she's like, and then we'll go over here and we'll put the, and my grandpa just, and it kind of the same way, it kind of scared me because I had never <laughs> heard, like, it was like a full on rolling, like belly laugh. So, yeah, but cool. Yeah. We're, I'm, I'm really excited to have you on, uh, just from the few anecdotes and like just hearing about, uh, your, your career path and what you what you did for a living uh mm-hmm. should be ripe for some some cool conversation and who knows like maybe at, during the course of this maybe there'll, there'll be some some cool stuff that that steve hasn't ever heard before or we'll we'll learn a, along the way together too so um, yeah well, hope i don't bore you to death <laughs> no. no i think i think we're in good hands no. um so yeah getting on to the good stuff do, did you have a particular spot that you want or a story that you wanted to start with or did you want to give like a brief background on your pops? Uh, yeah you're talking to me right yeah steve sorry. yeah so i mean pops is probably too humble to uh talk too much about himself in too in too glowing of terms but i mean he's basically lived three or four separate lifetimes and in his short life so far um kind of going through you know the the really short version is in college and after college went from being a, a paramedic, a firefighter, a cop, secret service, lawyer. And so I, I guess I would, and I've always, I've always thought and said that he should write a book because he has so many cool stories that, you know, he's not the type of guy that's like, let me regale you with all these cool stories. They kind of just have slowly leaked out over the years. So I've always thought he should write a book. So um, this might be a, another cool way of uh, getting some of those stories immortalized. But I guess... I mean, I kind of think this is going to be a two-parter because there's so much meat on the bone. I would hate to just rush through everything. So if you're uh, if sure. you're willing to maybe come back and talk about sure. uh, more of your stuff, I figured we would kind of split it between up through the police department and then the mm-hmm. part two could be all about the Secret Service because, I mean, there's so much for both of those topics. But And, I mean, if we really wanted to one day, we could go back into early early childhood trauma if you want, but I kind of wanted to just start with <laughs> like the college years. Cause that's, that's where you first became like a paramedic and firefighter. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. I was, uh, my last couple of years in college, I was an EMT, um, on an ambulance that helped supplement my income. Mm-hmm. Um, I always knew I wanted to get into emergency services and I, I knew from high school that I wanted to be a cop. Um, so in college, you know, I love the emergency services. So I went through the EMT program and then worked on an ambulance for the last couple of years in college. And then in my end of my first year in college, I had joined the volunteer fire department. So there was a time like my last three years in school, I was a volunteer fireman, firefighter and, uh, an EMT. Uh, and what was kind of cool was the fire department only had a couple of full-time guys to drive their trucks and they really relied on the volunteers to show up to, you know, put out fire. But they also had a rescue squad, which no one drove, uh, in, in that particular firehouse because nobody was an EMT or a paramedic. And then when I joined and got my EMT, not only was I a volunteer fireman, but I also drove the rescue squad, which was really cool. It was a lot of fun. And this is back in the 70s when this is all kind of 
the whole paramedic program and everything was really kind of new. So it was exciting. Wow. Yeah. And you'd, yeah, you'd mentioned sounds, like, sorry, no, you're fine. Uh, it, it's a different setup than most people I think would imagine where, you know, the, the ambulance drivers work for the hospital, they pick you up and take you to the hospital. It, there was like independent paramedics and yeah. EMTs working. So how, how did that work exactly? Yeah. So the ambulance company in the town I was living in going to school was a private ambulance concern. It was a private company. And, um, so you, you know, you would work for this private employer and he had his office, um, which was kind of a converted house because you worked, you worked 12 hour shifts. You either worked all day or you worked all night. And so it was a converted house that had bedrooms you could sleep in, you know, and if you were working at night and you were tired and you didn't have a call, you could, you could sack out for a little bit. Um, and then the rest of the house was converted to an office. And then outside the house, we were on a cul-de-sac and outside the house is where they parked all the ambulances. <laughs> so it was, it was really rather informal, but it, it worked well. And, you know, we would get the calls from the 911 dispatcher and we would respond to, you know, where, wherever, you know, wherever the emergency was. And at that time, you know, this is the, this is the mid seventies. And at that time, the paramedic program was just kind of getting started countrywide, but also just getting started in California. And the hospital actually had paramedics that would roll out of the hospital and they drove a pickup truck. Hmm. Wow. And if they had their equipment in the back of a pickup truck, they would have the, you know, like a Stokes basket, you know, you see these rescue baskets mm -hmm. uh, you could put a person in. So they would have a couple of backboards and Stokes baskets in the back of their pickup truck. And if it was a code three call, like a auto accident, you know, bad injury call, they would dispatch the paramedics out of the hospital in their pickup truck and they would dispatch us in the ambulance. And so we would respond together and they, you know, if it was something that required paramedic care, they would do that. And then we would load them in the ambulance and take them back to the hospital. So, wow. you know, fast forward a, a few years and you don't, you don't have that model anymore. It's, it's either, you know, hospital run or fire department run or private like AMR, you know, mm. um, and they, they still respond with the fire department, but you don't have this split function between, you know, hospital paramedics and, mm -hmm. and the ambulance company anymore, but it was new ground. And I think everybody was just trying to figure out their way through it. But for me being, you know, 21, 20, 21 years old, it was, you know, it's like a kid in a candy store. I just had so much fun doing that. Yeah. That sounds wild. That, that whole model too, like, uh, like having, was it like by region, you'd have a certain private company or was it up to the hospital, like who they wanted to use based on service or what kind of rates they would charge? Like, that sounds interesting. Like how, like who, who would you go to? Yeah. It, um, as far as I could, you know, as far as I know, um, they, you know, the company I work for would handle a fairly large regional area and it wasn't until you got into a different county or, or, you know, different remote area that they had their own ambulances. So I guess the dispatcher would have to look at where did it happen? And there mm -hmm. were only, there weren't, there wasn't any competition. If it happened in our area, we were it. 
Oh, okay. And if it was outside the county in a you know different county or a remote part where there was another amb- a private ambulance company, they would get they would get the call. That was their turf. Okay. Yeah, but there you know the resources were uh, you know pretty slim. I mean, we the company I worked for uh, would man basically two ambulances twenty four hours a day. So if there was you know a more significant problem, you know, a, a, you know, large accident or something, they would probably be pulling in ambulances from other counties and then calling in, you know, medics who were off duty trying to staff the unmanned ambulances. So it was, it was pretty thin. Yeah, yeah I can imagine. <laughs> and for point of reference, I don't, I don't know if you want to disclose this or not, but what region, uh, you said we're in California, what region is this Southern California or? Oh, it was, it was Butte County. Oh, okay. It was that we were in. So, you know, we, we handled almost all of Butte County and I think the closest other ambulance, um, was like in Calusa or Glen County. It was mm-hmm. quite a ways away. I mean, we handled a really wow. large area. Yeah. Yeah. So for those people who are not in the area, that's a good 30 to 60 minute drive. If, oh, if yeah. Another yeah, county. The county is a good sized county. Yes. And, and it's got a lot of different terrain, too, especially in like the nor- northern northeastern corner, too, when it crosses up into like Plumas and all that. Like if you get up yeah. in like 32 towards like yep. Almanor can get pretty hairy. Yeah. yeah, we would well, have calls of auto accidents on Highway 32 that would take us a half an hour, 45 minutes to get there. Yeah. And it's tra- it was tragic. Yeah. Well, I think you had also mentioned, I think this is when you were on the PD, that the Butte County Sheriff at night would have like one deputy for the entire county just roaming around. Am I misremembering that? or? Well, yeah, that, uh, so yeah, fast forward a couple of years when I'm on the police department, uh, on the police force, um, the sheriff, Butte County Sheriff at night, covering all of Butte County would field, typically, would field two cars, North County and South County. Wow. That's so crazy. And typically what they would do is they'd stay pretty close to each other, you know. Just in um, case. You know, yeah, that your only backup is, you know, you're yeah, the other deputy, and if you're yeah. down in the south part of the county and he's in the north part of the county, you know, yeah. you're you're hoping there may be some, you know, Orville PD close or a CHP or something, but there's no guarantee you're going to have any backup anywhere. So it was kind of dicey. Man. So that, the, that makes me think of real quick the, uh, like, you know, the Alaska state, state trooper or something, you know, how limited resources they have up there. And it's like yeah. have one trooper per like 4,000 square miles or whatever it is. But I mean, that's yeah, wild. You, that was, so this is in like the late seventies ish. Yeah. And, and early eighties, mid eighties up to mid eighties. Yeah. If you had to you guess, say something, Steve, I was just going to say to illustrate, if you had to guess how many square miles do you think that is? Or, or like, you know, how far is it north, south versus east, west? Because it's a big area for those that it's, are. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm not sure I'd hazard a guess. I, it, you know, if you think about crossing the Butte County line south near, you know, near, outside of Marysville somewhere and then driving all the way up to Tehama County, it's a long yeah. drive. It's uh, according to the U.S. Census Bureau, Butte County has a total area of 1,677 square miles. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's pretty, that's pretty big. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
So do you happen to remember any of your first like memorable calls when you were a paramedic or uh, sorry, well, I, just so I don't keep using the wrong terminology, it's what is it? Because I don't know the difference just between a, a, an EMT. We, we were just called medics. OK. Uh, EMTs. And then, you know, of course, there were paramedics, which became a more robust program as time went on. Okay. So, but we we were just medics or EMTs. So, did you ever have any calls early on where you got there and the shit had hit the fan and you were wondering like, oh, I don't know if this is actually what I want to do? Like, because I imagine you see some crazy stuff. Yeah, you know that probably not that reaction because I really enjoyed what I did mm. and um, you know seeing you know seeing tragedy or whatever didn't turn me off it made me feel like this is this is what i want to do this is why i'm here Mm -hmm. um you know but but being a small company ambulance company in a fairly large county you're rolling all the time and you would get everything you would get you know auto accidents um industrial accidents we rolled on a lot of construction sites where, you know, uh, carpenters and these kind of guys would cut themselves with circular saws. That was a real common um, call to get where these guys get so familiar with their hand tools. Um, you know, they'd lay a board across their leg and cut it with a saw. And every now and then, you know, it would go right through the leg. And that was that was not all the time, but fairly common or they take their fingers off, you know, this type of stuff, or, you know, like I said, auto accidents, um, you know, we would get a lot of heart attack and medical type calls. And it's, it's funny because one of the things that I noticed early on, and it still sticks with me today is that, um, a lot of heart attacks occur early in the morning mm-hmm. and, there, there, you know, there's a couple of reasons for that, that I, that I could see. And one of them is, you know, you would get couples or whatever who would wake up in the morning and their partner would not be moving. And so they mm. would call and that would be an early morning heart attack call. The other is a lot of people, you know, it, when they wake up in the morning, you know, they're, as I heard a doctor describe one time, you get those wake up hormones starting to run through your system. And then they would go to the bathroom and strain and, very typical of having to have a heart attack right about six or seven o'clock in the morning. And if you were working a night shift that got off at seven, you knew your last hour or two, you're going to be busy. And then the shift that's coming in at seven or eight or whatever, they know they're going to hit the ground running. Yeah. Um, But like I said, even to this day, if I'm sitting outside on a summer morning and it's six 30 and I hear the siren, I'm thinking it's heart attack. Hmm. Wow. And, you know, just, you know, 40 years, 50 years later, I'm still, it's still with me that feeling of that early morning mm-hmm. code three run on a, on a heart attack call. So wow. kind of crazy. Yeah. It's yeah. weird how you see little patterns like that start to emerge. And I can't remember where I heard it, but I heard somebody saying the same thing that a lot of people have heart attacks in the morning because they, they get up to use the bathroom and I, I can't remember why they said it, but they said that uh, when they get up first thing in the morning, it, their blood like shifts or there's like a increase or decrease in blood pressure that if their, if their heart is already kind of on its last leg, 
that can just be the the thing that pushes it over the edge. But yeah, yeah well, I, that would fit. Yeah, I, I, it's weird because the the phrase like their blood is shifting. It always stuck out. Like I don't know what that means, but it was memorable. Mm-hmm. So that yeah, yeah hey, that's real quick point of order. Uh, can you try to speak up a little bit to kind of offset the lack of being able to hear you? Me? Yeah. Yeah. No problem. Or maybe try to position the mic closer and or and talk louder in general. The rest for the duration, please. Yeah. Let me see if I can <laughs> if I can get that up there. <clears throat> um. Damn it! What was I going to say? Oh. Uh, let me timestamp this 2330. Yeah. I was making me think of, I don't know if they're related, but you know how, like sometimes when you, if you're like laying down or even just sitting in a chair and like you get up really quickly and you, I've seen people like faint. I I know there's a, there's a funky word for it. I thought where you like the blood rushes to your head real quick and it feel you Mm. feel like, Whoa, I wonder if that maybe that same kind of thing is happening when you first wake up in the morning, like you get out of bed and like your body's mm-hmm. like starting up and there's so much stuff going on that maybe that has something to do with it. But that's interesting. That makes me yeah. think of like, like probably less legit of a, an analogy, but like the full moon and <laughs> being a, a ton of pregnancies and, and births and that kind of thing. But is yeah. that a, is that a myth about on full moons, cops staff more and, hospital staff more i've always heard that have you experienced that at all yeah it's i'd I'd heard that too um you know i don't know if there's research or statistics or if it's a myth but i gotta tell you after you know having been on the street for quite a number of years there was something about full moons that seemed to bring the nut jobs out Huh. And, you know, I, I work predominantly at like a swing shift or a graveyard shift, Rare, rarely work during the day, but usually, you know, like a swing shift or a graveyard and which was more fun because, you know, that's when if it's going to happen, it's going to happen at night, probably. And, and that uh, probably fit into out of necessity because you said you were going to school and working at the same time. So you would do school in the day. And then, man, I remember when you first said that, I was like, man, I thought I had it rough. You know, like I, I know I, I went to, I started out going to just school and then like later on in life, uh, kind of slacking off and then having to play the work and school game. Mm -hmm. But I can only imagine in like doing that and then rushing around and like ambulance calls. And then later on, like, you know, like volunteer fire department. My, my grandfather uh, who just passed recently, he was a chief of Corning fire for oh, like yeah. 35 years. So I kind of grew up in that, uh, that firehouse. And that was all, they only had three paid positions. I think it was chief dispatcher and one other person. Yeah. That so fits. I know they're, they're very volunteer driven. And um, a lot of them, like I, I learned more about like medical aids than I did fire when I was younger because small towns like that yep. uh, at that time, like, 80% of their calls were all medical aids usually. But, I think uh, those numbers are still probably accurate. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, yeah and spe- especially in smaller towns that don't have the same kind of resource, they kind of have, they have to lean on those small volunteer driven departments, you know? So, yeah. Anyway. Uh, yeah. I can only imagine like do, being, you know, an 18, 18 to 22 year old juggling school and doing all this kind of wild stuff at night. Sounds, sounds pretty interesting. Yeah, it was fun. You know, one of the advantages I had of, and it may be a, an advantage of working for, you know, a private ambulance company or, or, you know, the, the regulations were probably more relaxed back in those days <laughs> is that, yeah. 
you know, if I was working during the day, I tried to take night shifts because of school. But if I was working during the day uh, and my partner, because you always had a two person, two medic ambulance, you never you never drove an ambulance to a call by yourself for obvious reasons, I guess. But uh, if my if my partner had no objection, I would take the ambulance to school uh, <laughs> and and go to school in my uniform with my radio and park the ambulance right outside the door of the building. You know, campus police had given me permission to park right on the sidewalk outside the building. And if there was a That's call awesome. during class, I'd run out, jump in the ambulance and we'd go. But if there wasn't, I could I could get my classes in. Nice. So, you know, you always knew when Tom was taking a class because there'd be an ambulance outside one of the buildings, you know. That's just good for the parking. Yeah. It was perfect. Well, shit, so. chicks, chicks dig a guy in uniform, too, so you got that going for you. Yeah. Never I imagine- had that problem, but. <laughs> well, and I can't imagine a professor would be too hard on you if, if you had to leave suddenly. No. Yeah. No, they're all pretty good about it. Like, sorry, I have lives to save. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what was what was your major in college? Business administration. Uh, okay. But you but you still kind of always had your sight set on like the emergency service world. Yeah. I mean, even from high school, I you know, my my goal was always to be a be a cop. I mean, that's what that's what I wanted to do early on and um but I knew, you know, I was encouraged by my parents to go to college and it just seemed like that's the path you go. I didn't really even ever consider not going. Maybe mm-hmm. that was just the time, time, you know, the time. But, um, but, you know, I remember my dad encouraging me to get a business degree because his thinking was you can kind of use that anywhere mm-hmm. as opposed to some other degree that may be a little more specialized and, you know, it might pigeonhole you some more. And I think it, I think that's, that was probably good advice. It was a well-rounded education, but I went into college knowing I want to be a cop, which I, I don't think thrilled my parents very much. <laughs> and then as soon as I graduated from college, I went right in, right into the police force. So it there during college, I did the volunteer fireman thing and I did two seasons, two summers with seat with well, what we call Cal Fire now, it was CDF at the time, mm-hmm. where you actually live at the fire station five days a week, all fire season. And I loved that. But it also showed me, you know, if there's a lot of downtime to be in a fireman, to be in a firefighter, a lot of yeah. sitting around and it drove really. me crazy. And I thought, you know, I love fighting fires and I love going to medical aids and all that. But the downtime was brutal and which was good because it taught me you know this isn't really a career path i want to take so i just kind of stayed focused on law enforcement is that because cdf and cal fire or cal fire now they're do they assist in medical aid type stuff or they're strictly fire is what yeah it was rare and, and it may be you may be right jim that it may not even be like in their charter you know or whatever but we rarely ever went to uh, a medical aid, okay. Yeah, because I did I did one season uh, what what they called Schedule B, which was wildland fire suppression, and that was out of the Paradise Fire Department. And all you did was 
you know, grass fires, forest fires, that type of thing. And then my next season I did in Chico, which was called a Schedule A fire station. And that was all, you know, like structure fires and car fires and, and stuff like that. But about the only time we ever got called out to an auto accident, say, was not to render aid, but to stand by, you know, because the, the car might catch fire, which was really rare. Mm-hmm. Um, or to hose down, you know, the road, at, you know, after they drug the, 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 you know, the wrecked cars off. Um, and that was, that was about it. So very, very little medical. Um, but sometimes the rescue yeah. squad would get sent to a medical aid, which when I was a volunteer fireman, I would drive that. So that was fun. Yeah. I've had, a, I had a couple of friends in Cal Fire in the, mid aughts or so and they said it was it was a lot of hurry up and wait a lot of they got really good at sweeping and smoking cigarettes <laughs> was like a downtime and chewing sunflower seeds um, yeah so it's not all glamorous but i imagine anymore now the way the fire season is such a yeah. monster that it's it sounds really rough like I, yeah. I don't i don't know how those guys do that just in that kind of area or like places like arizona and that that are just like it just seems like one of the the hardest things Mm-hmm. that you can do. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. So I liked riding around in a police car. I liked, I liked having a black and white. So that's, <laughs> that was, <laughs> yes, but, that was my focus. So you went to the Academy fresh out of college, what, 21? Well, um, so the, kind of the, kind of how I got into it, um, you know, my, my interest in law enforcement and then how I actually got in the job. It, I can give you a little, little background on that, but, yeah. Um, when I was in high school, I think it was my senior year in high school, which would have been uh, 1973 to 1974. Um, if you were a senior and you had enough credits or whatever, you could take what they called an A period class. And it was before school started, they would offer these classes, you know, um, if you wanted to go, it was voluntary, but you, you had to you had to have decent grades because they didn't want to be wasting their time putting on these classes for people who weren't serious. And one of the A period classes that they offered and I went to was on it was a criminal justice class, a basic criminal justice class. And this was down in the Bay Area where, where I was living. And it was taught by a detective at San Leandro PD. And I don't know how many mornings we went. Maybe we went five days a week, but uh, I was fascinated by his stories of law enforcement and criminal investigation and everything the cops did. It just thrilled me. I thought this this is really cool, you know. And then the, the at the end of the class, one of the things they would allow you to do is do an actual ride along with a San Leandro PD officer. So uh, on a Saturday morning, I went down to the police station, actually got to sit through briefing and then paired up with a, you know, uniformed police officer and went out and spent the day with him driving around. And, you know, it was, you know, it was just thrilling. It was like this, this is my career goal. But it was funny because it was day shift, which is typically not as busy as, you know, when the sun goes down. But, you know, we were we were driving along. It was early, not early morning, but like mid morning. And he gets a call of a burglar alarm at a 
elementary school somewhere in San Leandro. And we roll out there and drive around to the back of the school and we could see windows broken. And as we're driving up to the back of the building, two, two guys bail out of one of the buildings that had been broken into and take off running. And, <laughs> you know, to the chagrin of the officer I'm riding with, I bail out of the car and take <laughs> off and I take off after one of them yes. and he's running for the fence and I'm about to catch him. I'm about to go hands on and take him down when another San Leandro PD car that was, you know, rolling for backup sees what's happening and drives across the field and cuts this, this burglar, you know, his kid, he was, he was a kid, you know, he's older than me, but he was still a kid, you know, cuts him off and, you know, they hook him up and throw him in the back of the car and, you know, off, you know, and off we, so then we do the paper, you know, we do the report on the burglary and go back to the station and, you know, book, book these guys. And so I think they caught the other guy too, but the officer was like, um, so really shouldn't do that. <laughs> he was, he was so nice, but he was kind of like, you could just see he's thinking, here goes my career, you know? Yeah. Um, but then, so, but, but I went home after that and I think the adrenaline stayed in my system for probably oh, a week. You know, it was just like <laughs> coolest thing ever. And but, so that was a weekend. So Monday morning, we're back in class and the guy who's teaching the class starts it a little bit. And then he looks over at me and he goes, he was talking about what happened over the weekend with the ride alongs. And he looks over at me and he goes, and you caught a burglar. <laughs> and it's just like something clicked inside of me. And I thought, yes, I did. You know, <laughs> um, That's awesome. Oh, so, but it was like, there, there was no talking me out of it at that oh, yeah. point and off I went, it, that was it. And then, so like, you know, go to college and then write, well, and so funny, funny little side, I'm in my last year of college and I'm a volunteer fireman and I'm a medic and that's med, being a medic was kind of, you know, that's where I made my money. That's where I, you know, and, um, and I got it in my head that, you know, now is the time to start pursuing law enforcement. So while I'm still in college and while I'm a volunteer firefighter and while I'm a medic, I joined the Butte County Sheriff's Department as a reserve deputy sheriff. Wow. So I'm doing school and these three other jobs. So whenever I have any spare time, I would go down to the sheriff's substation, grab one of the guys and ride along and my training was minimal. I only had to take like one class at Butte College to get certified as a reserve. And now this is in the 70s, get certified as a reserve. So I'm in uniform, gun belt, badge. I look no different than a regular deputy, but wow. I, I, you know, I mean, I had like one class and I, so I couldn't patrol by myself, but I could ride along. And so yeah. I did that until I finally graduated from college. And then I took a job. I got a job almost, almost immediately with the PD. So that was just, I look back on it now and I'm thinking, holy smokes, you know, what, what are yeah. you thinking? You know? <laughs> that will, man, that sounds like, that's like full immersion, you know, like yeah. 
it sounds like that's that's the kind of, no wonder you got hired so quick like that sounds like the the well-rounded kind of individual i would want like right away you know and like maybe that's what's missing from this day and age you know like i don't know they either that that's or they wild. looked at me like can't you figure out what you want to do you know <laughs> i mean <laughs> settle on well, one I mean, thing I, you know I can only imagine like how, you know, you hear, I don't want to get political or anything and, you know, people like to knock cops nowadays, but until they're in trouble. But I mean, it doesn't take much to just hop in, go to the academy and go. It sounds like, you know, there, it should be a little bit more like other, I know other countries, it's more robust, you know, and like more mm-hmm. well-rounded. And it sounds like, you know, knowing the kind of individual you are and, and uh, the career you had. I'm sure all that kind of stuff played into it, you know, like having a little bit of flavor of, you know, going on medical calls and the fire and school and having all and juggling all that and keeping it all together and becoming and and wearing the the deputy, the reserve sheriff hat. That's on. That's crazy. Yeah, it was it was funny. I look back on it now and I think, you know. You couldn't do that today. I mean, just the liability aspect alone, you know, you couldn't, yeah. you couldn't put a guy out there with, and it's funny because right after I graduated from college and I get on full-time police department, um, my first week on the job, uh, I spend, it's, they were working five day work weeks. So my first week on the job, my first four nights, and I was working nights. My first four nights, I spend each night with a different officer. So I rode, you know, double car four nights with a different guy. On the fifth night, I come into briefing and I figure, well, I'm just going to double up with somebody. And the, the lieutenant, the watch commander, tosses me a set of car keys and says, OK, you're on your own. Don't get into anything you can't get out of. And I thought... Holy smokes, you know, so my, my field training program was all of four nights with four different guys. And I, I, I worked by myself, in a in a black and white for four months before they sent me to the academy. Oh, Holy wow. Cow. I didn't so know that. So this is before police academy? Before. Wow. But, so it was four months of on the job training Oh, and wow. then I went to the academy. <laughs> so was that unique to you, knowing what kind of individual you were and like the the variables, or was that anybody coming in off the street? They'd be like that. They and when they hired need me, to be modest either. No, no, no. It I, and I don't. Yeah, I don't think it had anything to do with me. I think they hired me because they thought, well, you're probably you're probably not you know a crazy man. You know, um, you're probably <laughs> capable. You know, knowing knowing what they were going to do. But when I got hired, there were three of us that were hired at the same time. And all three of us kind of went the same pattern. We worked for months and then sent off to different academies. Um, One guy was sent off to Academy in Butte College, and I was sent off to Modesto uh, at a a regional police academy down there. And I don't know where the third, I don't remember where the third guy went, but we were, yeah, we were all working by ourselves out there doing it for four months before, before I, you know, <laughs> that's crazy. People now bitch and moan about like, Oh, they only go to an Academy for three months or whatever it is. And they become police officers. Like dude, back in the seventies. <laughs> yeah. You're, you got the keys to a black and white for four <laughs> months before the, that's not, it's Isn't so it crazy. crazy? How, 
where we've come from like just the seventies to now, how everything, it seems like it's ramped up with like technology. There's so many, so much more red tape and, and everything's compartmentalized and it's got to be official and this and that. And it was yeah. not very long ago. Like that's, that's so wild. Yeah. The, I mean, the training they get now is much more extensive. It's, you know, if, like I said, three, three or four month academy, and then you go into an FTO program, field training officer program, which are, you know, is so much different. It's, those, those are usually 16 week, you know, depending on the department. So, you know, you get a lot more training now mm-hmm. uh, than we did, which, and, and of course the job is, is much more difficult now. It's much more dangerous. And yeah, it's a completely different world. It is. It's crazy. Did you know any of that stuff, Steve? Uh, no, not really. <laughs> I mean, well, little bit, little little bits and pieces. You've been sitting on the good but... stuff, Tom. I, apparently, so don't tell your brother. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, uh, speaking of Ryan, my brother, your son, also, you know him. He was telling me you that know, you had your a son. You had a pretty crazy experience with. He referred to it as your first ride along, but. It has. It had to do with a car that like sideswiped a chain link fence, and there was like a catastrophic injury to the person. Oh, does that ring a bell? Oh, that's funny that he would remember that. It was. Um, yeah, I mean that was kind of tragic. That that actually happened when I'd been on the department for probably I don't know five years. Um, I was I was working a what they you know it was a. I had a special assignment. It was me and one other guy that were assigned to a, a traffic division in on the police department, but it was a grant where these office, you, you know, me and this other guy were were dedicated specifically to major injury and fatal accidents. And oh, wow. the I think the thinking was that if you could fund a couple of cars, a couple of officers to work, you know, major injury and fatal accidents and, you know, gather some data on, which could be used maybe to prevent these things. And, uh, and also when you weren't doing that, they would have you do some traffic enforcement, but usually you were pretty busy handling auto accident claims. But yeah, it was, it was just a freak accident that, that Ryan was probably talking about where uh, late at night, you know, alcohol involved. I know it's a shock. Um, high speed, uh, single vehicle going down a residential street, lost control and went sideways, passenger side sideways into a chain link fence. And the passenger, uh, window where the, where the passenger was sitting, right? Hit a gate, hit a gate at the chain link fence. And the passenger in it, of course, their head went to the to the right when they hit slammed sideways into this chain link fence gate and tragically ran the a bolt right through this girl's head. God. And it was one of the more bizarre I mean, I went to a lot of bizarre accidents where you look at it and you go, Holy, you know, holy smokes, how, how in the world did you do this? But it but it was it was just one of those freak things where it probably would have been, but for the fact that that car hit that chain link fence sideways right at the gate, and mm-hmm. the gate was right at the passenger window. But for that, it probably would have been a non-injury accident. You know, kind of a he probably would have driven off. 
you know, probably would have been a hit and run. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, as it turned out, and one of the tragic things about that is the drunk driver lived. Well, of course, you know, they usually yeah. always do. But um, the auto accident, of course, it was loud and it's early in the morning and that brought the neighbors out. And as I recall, one of the neighbors who came out was a reporter with a local TV station and got a camera on that scene, broadcasting it. The family saw it before we had notified them that their daughter had been killed. Wow. And that created a real brouhaha for the, for the TV station. Man, that's weird. Even back then, people had that inclination to just put it on film. You know, that sounds like something this day and age, someone whooped their phone out like right away. And like this person just happened to be a news reporter and had big ass 80s camera right at the ready. Gosh. Right. And that, and that may have been why I remembered that case so well, because I, I mean, I, I investigated a lot of fatals and that was kind of a bizarre one. But I think it was just the whole thing with getting it on the air so quickly and the family seeing it which you think about the odds of both those things happening yeah Yeah. it was just weird yeah that is weird um so that that probably was what ryan was talking about Stephen. yeah well i do uh the story you were telling about chasing that guy down reminded me of a slightly more lighthearted story that you you might have to correct my memory but it it had to do with cleanser with you chasing a guy down and there was some assistance from a member of the general public. Oh, yeah. You want to tell that story? Yeah. That one, this one always made me laugh. Yeah, it's you know it kind of reinforces your faith in in the general public in humanity. But yeah. <laughs> uh, this was a daytime uh, thing, and I was just driving down driving down the road, and I saw a guy standing on the side of the road, and as soon as he turned and looked at me. You could just, you know, if there is such a thing as a guilty look, <laughs> you know, this this guy looks at me and it just it was written all over his face that there's something wrong here. And so I just drove past him, turned around and came back. And when I came back, he took off running. And so I took off after him and he ran into a field. And so I drove as far as I could. And then I bailed out of the car because I didn't want to ruin the bottom of my car and, you know, chasing this guy for what, what I didn't even know why he's running. I figured he was wanted. Turned out he was. Well, and um, if anybody's wondering, you are allowed to chase somebody just because they run from you. Right. It's not yeah. like, yeah. How would you explain that? Like, uh, like you have probable well, cause to chase them because they look at you and run or how, how is that? Yeah, it's kind of it kind of goes to the consciousness of guilt evidence, mm-hmm. you know, that if that if you're walking up to somebody and they look at you and they take off running, then, you know, it, and of course, I haven't I haven't researched the law in that last 40 years. So I don't know, <laughs> you know, if that's still the case or not. But so anyway, this guy takes off running and, you know, I chase him for a while in my car and then I get out and I, you know, I call it in that I'm in foot pursuit. So I, I get out of the car and and I'm chasing him on foot. And the next thing I know, I hear the roar of this engine coming up behind me. And this guy in a four-wheel drive truck passes me, <laughs> gets up to the bad guy that I'm chasing, cuts him off. The The driver of the pickup gets out and starts to just pummel this guy I'm chasing. <laughs> you know, 
and I'm yelling, stop, stop, you know, I, <laughs> but he's just, you know, he's, he's put this guy down and he's keeping him down and his fists are flying and he's a big boy. And so I finally, I finally get up there and, you know, this, this suspect is subdued. Of course, <laughs> he's got no fight left in him. He had no gas to begin with, let alone, you know, to fight. But so anyway, I, you know, I roll him over on his tummy and I put my knee in his back and I'm hooking him up, cuffing him up. And the guy jumps back in his truck and takes off. And it's like, I have no idea who this guy was. And my backup comes rolling in and uh, it was a guy named Gary. And I said, did you, Gary, did you see that truck? And he goes, yeah. And I go, did you get the plate? He goes, no. It's kind of like, why would I? Yeah. And it's like, oh, man. <laughs> so, you know, fortunately, the guy wasn't in too bad a shape, but it's, you know, the booking photo of him looks like we beat the daylights out of him. Yeah. You know, like, and I'm trying. Geez, Tom, wouldn't take it right. easy, buddy. You know, and I'm trying to explain Gosh. to the sergeant, no, this this wasn't me. This was a phantom guy yeah. who came out of nowhere, <laughs> you know. And and, and the sergeant's looking at me like, uh-huh, yeah, okay, yeah, okay, yeah. It does like seem like such a good... He was the one-armed man. <laughs> it exactly. Does, it does seem like such a good cover story. Like, this guy just came out of nowhere and beat the shit out of him and then drove off. And That's yeah. so funny. That What's that guy's story? Like, he's just driving by in big 4 by 4 truck and sees that dude running from the cops and is like, I'm going to do something about this. Yeah. And then takes off, like... Yeah. Put him down, and it's like, here you go. <laughs> I mean, I've even got him he, for you. Even if he would have hung out, like, what would you do? Just tell him thanks and then encourage him to get out of there. I can't imagine you would like detain him yeah. or anything, right? Unless I mean, he really... the right thing to do would be to get his information and put it in the report, and you know, yeah. But then you're, yeah, I don't know. Or you just say, you "Might want to leave." Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But <laughs> I mean, that happened a number of times where I'd be down on the ground hooking somebody up and some passerby would come by and get a few licks in <laughs> and you know it's it, it was just and usually you're kind of in the middle of a melee where you know there's you know all kinds of stuff going on and somebody will come and they'll put the boots to them or you know hit, you know get some kind of lick in and you got to think this this goes back to an earlier fight they had or an earlier argument. Now, now they see their oh, adversary yeah. down and, you know, incapacitated. So they're going to go get a lick or two in and then disappear into the crowd. That gotcha. happened a number of times. Interesting. Man, that's ballsy. Cause that's not, I was thinking, you know, purely like good Samaritan situation, but then, yeah, that makes sense. You know, if like two guys are in kind of a ruckus and one gets away and he slips in to get a, a couple jabs. Man. Yeah, I had a call one night where New Year's Eve, which was the worst night in the world. Um, <laughs> the only thing worse than New Year's Eve would be, I guess, New Year's Eve on a full moon. But oh, um, yeah. <laughs> but we got a call, and this was this was back in the mid '80s where PCP was a big deal, and oh, wow. um, somebody had slipped this guy some PCP and. Um, he just went nuts at a fraternity party and it was a, it was a fraternity house full of football players. Um, and they were all big guys and he 
basically goes into this house under the influence of PCP, you know, and commences to just clean up. He's just knocking everybody around. And, was he you know, particularly they, like scrawny type of yeah, dude? Yeah, he was just a little guy. Just a little gangly dude? But, you know, his he, he just had that superhuman strength and no, no pain threshold whatsoever. But it was just typical PCP where they're just they're just crazy. And they, you know, a bunch of them jumped on this guy and they were able to drag him out of the house. But, you know, kicking and fighting and biting and they get him on the front lawn and they get him face down. And when I get there, there are literally like six guys on top of this guy and he's still fighting. Man. And I'm thinking, oh, man, PCP. Right. And so I, I <laughs> walk up to it and it's all these guys can do to keep him on the ground. And these are big dudes. And so I'm kind of looking at the situation like, well, what am I going to do? You know, and so I tell the guys, we got to get his hands behind his back, but I don't want anybody getting off of him or we've got a real problem on our hands. So everybody stay on top of him, but let's try to get his hands behind his back if I can cuff him. And I would cuff his hands and I would cuff his feet, his ankles, and then I would run a, I had a dog leash and I would run it and hog tie him. Mm-hmm. And it would it would take enough of the fight out of him that he couldn't hurt anybody. And that's you just had to do that. And so while I'm down trying to get this guy's hands behind his back, which was more work than you, you <laughs> might imagine, somebody walks up behind me and, you know, in your uniform pants, you've got these pockets, you've got back pockets, okay? And then below the back pocket is a little slit and it's a long pocket and you can put your flashlight in the, in the old days, you carried these big flashlights, huge mag light, mag, yeah. you know, big mag light. And I was carrying a stream light, you know, which was like, would be the equivalent of like maybe a six D cell light, super bright for the, for the time. So I had my flashlight in my, they call it a sap pocket. And I had, so I had my flashlight in my sap pocket I'm down on the ground. I'm down on my knees trying to get this guy's hands behind his back. And somebody walks up behind me and pulls the flashlight out of my pocket and hits this PCP guy over the head as hard as I've ever seen anybody get hit with, you know, with a tube, a metal tube before. Yeah. You know, then he, then he drops the light and takes off into the crowd because there's this huge crowd around us, you know, watching the festivities. I have no idea who he is. And now I got a PCP, you know, subject with a big old gash in the back of his head. And now I got to call an ambulance. And we finally get the guy cuffed up, hands and ankles. His head is bleeding. He's, you know, he's snarling and fighting and biting. We, we, we get him up onto the gurney. He's chewing on the gurney mattress. Um, <laughs> You know, just superhuman, out of control. But I felt so sorry for the guy because, <clears throat> you know, <laughs> you know, he just he just got this big gash in his head now. Anyway, they took him to the hospital and they I don't know if they gave him Narcan or whatever they gave him, but they they you know they detoxed him and, and you know got him okay. Um, yeah, I mean that some a strike like that could kill somebody. Oh, yeah. that's well, it's funny because when. When I felt the flashlight come out of my back pocket, it was a weird feeling like, what the heck, you know? 
And then all of a sudden, all I see is my flashlight coming down on this guy's head. And my first, my first thought was, that's a $200 flashlight. (laughs) The heck are you doing? Don't, you don't hit anybody with your flashlight. Are you crazy? You know, Gosh. but I'll tell you a follow up to that. So, you know, you know, we, we got the guy to the hospital and, you know, got him, got some care and got his head taken care of. Unfortunately, it, it, it wasn't a long-term damage to, you know, from that hit. And the only reason I know that is like a week later, I'm in the police station and this guy comes in and I think he came in with his dad, came in with an older guy, came up to the window, the police station, and asked for me. And so they come, I was in the back and they come and get me and bring me up. And as I'm walking up to the window, I see this guy, he's got two black raccoon black eyes his face is all puffy and i walk up to the window and he says do you remember me and and i i said no i mean i don't even recognize you I, and he goes mm-hmm. i'm the guy under that was under pcp at the party and i'm looking at this guy and he had taken such a beating that night that i, I didn't even realize what a beating he took wow. but in his rage these football players apparently had got a lot of hits in on him. And here he is standing at the window and he says, I just wanted, I just wanted to let you know, I just wanted to apologize for my behavior. And yeah. he told me, he says, I, I had been given PCP and I, I wasn't aware. Some, and that we confirmed that through some witnesses at the party is that they thought it would be funny to slip this guy, this oh, little yeah. guy, some PCP. This will be a little barrel of laughs. Yeah. And, um, but I'll never forget him showing up at the window. I don't think of all the, you know, people I'd arrested or had any contact with. Nobody ever came back and said, I'm sorry. Yeah. And it's like, well, you know, I mean, man, it was crazy. I, I mean, not that there's people out there that like, you know, deserve a beating like that. Uh, but, you know, especially not this guy who was slipped PCP. I mean, gosh, yeah, yeah that it, does make me feel bad for him now. It was tragic. I mean, you think of people that like, that are in that world and that they're just out of control, you know, you're not going to have the same level of sympathy for someone who has slipped it and then could have been killed by a, a mag yeah. light shot to the head. Like that's yeah, imagine, that he, imagine he how much through pain he was in when he sobered up after getting his oh, ass yeah. kicked. Just like all hit you at once. Like, ugh. yeah. When I saw him like a week later, he still, you know, it still had to be hurting big time. Yeah. yeah I felt sorry for him. I remember one of our coworkers, uh, he used to be a real rough and tumble character because he started when he was like 19. So he was in p- prime party mode in the Chico area. But uh, I remember one time he came in and I didn't hardly recognize him because I've heard the term getting your bo- ears boxed in. Mm-hmm. And he came in like a Monday, mo- Monday morning after being out all night uh, and his ears were boxed in and like you couldn't even stick your pinky finger into his ear canal. They were all puffed up. Like looked like one of those wrestlers with cauliflower. You know what I'm talking oh, about? Yeah. Yeah. yeah like this a black guy. And this is Tyler. This is. Yeah. Crazy. I, yeah. He went to a party, I think, cause he had lost his phone and he went to a party. He wasn't invited to and was like, help me find my phone. And these guys are like, or we could just beat the shit out of you. And yeah. he got roughed up so bad that the girls at the party felt so bad. They like took him home. Like that's how bad it was. Yeah, I remember him coming in. It looked he looked pretty rough, and he was no slouch either. No, 
Yeah, that's what he was could handle his own for sure. Yeah, yeah, and he was like, "Yeah, I got." I remember just like getting kicked in the side of the head and in the ears, and you could believe it because yeah, his ears were just puffed out like sideways, like they were like filled up with air, like balloons. That was weird. Wow. He's got yeah. his own set of crazy stories in that area, like waking up on just somebody's front lawn to like EMTs, and then he just took off. Yeah, <laughs> like, that's one of my favorite stories of his, but. There was, there was another instance where you had a guy that you couldn't get under control. I can't remember if, if that was PCP also, um, but I think it was in the park, and it's the guy you ended up having to kick in the nuts to try to get him to comply. Do you remember that? The, the thing that sticks out in my mind is so funny about it is you showed up, and two or three cops were wrestling this guy, and oh yeah, they happened to turn him as you were like approaching like on a field goal. Uh, yeah. And the only way to uh, gain compliance, we'll say, is to just kick him square in the nuts. And they had to man up. The, the thing that always struck me as funny about that is, I think it was one of the other cops there told you, well, I don't think you have to file a report on that because you started that kick in the next county. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. You have a good memory. I'm I'm not sure I'm the one who did the kicking, but well, maybe the statute of limitations is run on that. Sure. So yeah, yeah, but yeah, but someone he, who isn't me, who yeah, someone who isn't me, but yeah, he said that kick originated from out of county, so we didn't have to worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> Was it another quote unquote guy in a four wheel drive that came and kicked the guy in the nuts and then yeah. left? It may have been the your your phantom uh, good Samaritan. That was another PCP. <laughs> okay, yeah, I wasn't sure. Yeah, it was real. It was real popular before mess. Yeah. So is this all in the same area as well? And I can I, I can edit stuff out too if you don't want to get no, too personal fine. about about anything. But is this the same region like Butte County, Northern California? Yep. yep. Wow. So that yeah. was like the precursor to like to meth was like the big problem thing. Yeah. Kind of drug that that drove some level of crime. Was PCP? Yeah, was big? it's you know you always had heroin and coke and 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 all that, but you know PCP was a problem because it was so mind altering, mm-hmm. and you know people would just get um, you know they they'd be out of their mind and they would be you know like the you know the Hulk you know they would just be physically you know stronger than they normally would be mm-hmm. um but it just physiologically it had crazy effects on people they would just go wild and you always knew <clears throat> um when you had a pcp suspect because not only were they wild but they were they would generally be stripping their clothes off um, yeah i was just gonna say just to interject real quick the only experience or like frame of reference i have and i'm curious if you have the same one steve is maybe people of a certain age that grew up with the show cops in the early and mid nineties. I remember there was one in particular that burned in my mind. It was this big dude. He's, he was already a Hulk looking dude and he was on PCP and the cops show up to this call and he's kind of covered in blood, half of his body. He's butt ass naked. And he like punches through a fence with like his palm, like he's trying to reach someone and the fence just, it looks like a graham cracker. Like it just, it just splits, you know, and the cops try to subdue him and he, he's just walking just chest out. Like it, it, it looked like a Hulk situation. Like it's just, it just turns everything up to 11 
Anya. And even like when they're finally got him on the ground, it took like seven or eight cops to subdue this guy. And that's one thing, like when I think, when I hear PCP and like the inhuman strength and all that, it's like, it goes back to that moment. And it makes me think too, like, you know, when you hear like, um, like mothers that, that are able to tap into that crazy strength and lift up a car to save their child or whatever. It's just like, it's that for 12 hours or however, whatever the half-life of PCP is on this just rolling ball of spikes. It sounds like the worst kind of assignment. Well, and also show up to, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but this was pre taser era. So you didn't even have that to like debilitate us. When do you switch from like Billy club to gun to, you know, what, like the, the rules of engagement, how does that work? Like, yeah, it's all up to your interpretation. Yeah, this was before before tasers, so you know all you had was a stick, nightstick, or your gun, um, and you, you know you you don't want to be shooting these people. I mean, they're generally not you know exhibiting deadly force, threat of deadly force necessarily. Um, so I think you would do probably what they did on that cop show is you get you know you get five or six and you just tackle them and hold them down, and that's all you can do. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, get the get more, get as many officers as you can. So, you know, two or three officers are going to get hurt. Six, maybe nobody gets hurt. Mm-hmm. You know, if you can if you can dogpile on them with six six you know cops, then maybe nobody gets hurt. So, yeah, yeah. It, was, it was it was a law enforcement problem for all the years I was working, and that's when they were experimenting with things, you know, non-lethal things like, you know, bean bags and shotguns and nets. What they were had a number of companies trying to develop a net, like you throw over a tiger, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, but none of those were really satisfactory. And then somewhere after I left, what's that mean? Throw over a tiger. Well, you know, like if you were trying to, trying to capture a tiger, you might throw a big net over it. Gotcha. Okay. And, uh, I guess some departments had some success with netting these guys, but, um, you know, the other thing you don't want to do is some type of, you know, uh, subduing tap tactic, which is really going to hurt the guy. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there, there were some concerns if you throw a net over somebody that, you know, they could choke themselves or break their arm or whatever. And it's like, well, that's not really the goal, you know, so... It, it just sounds, was a problem. That sounds more amenable to me than than the PCP guy going for another four yeah. hours. You know, a broken arm sounds like a an okay trade, but and, yeah, I was and thinking like, right. what about a, just like a bolo, you know? Or it made me think of like uh, the uh, Empire Strikes Back at the beginning in the, at Hoth when they they get the ATAT, like the the walkers, they get the wire around the ankles. Yeah, like that's what I'd want to go for, like just. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, oh, I was just going to say, I was just going to say, you know, I think there was some, there was a lot of companies experimenting with stuff like that, but, you know, it it never made its way to, to us. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I know dad and I have talked about this before, but even somebody who's stone cold sober and not a very strong person, uh, I think, I think a lot of people would be surprised how difficult it is to handcuff somebody if they really do not want to be handcuffed. Yeah. I mean, you, you see it. I see it a lot with these crazy uh, public videos of people freaking out, like little girls 
who will be fighting yeah, like women fighting that cops. you wouldn't think can put up a fight. Yeah, they yeah, they're and, slippery trout, man. It's crazy because you hear you hear the criticism like, well, why couldn't you just handcuff them without you know insert whatever? It's like compliance is a difficult thing. So yeah, it's yeah, you're right. Dude, I have trouble sometimes getting a diaper on my son, man. If he wants to start corkscrewing, <laughs> man, it's just like yeah. But your son is a tank, to be fair. I just saw a, pic- a, a picture of him the other day. To be fair, to his credit, he is a ball of spikes himself. But that's cute. <laughs> so I, I imagine you had some pretty scary moments, though. Like I, I can think of a couple stories you, you told me where I mean, you might not have been afraid at the time, but you know. You can you can catch yourself in some pretty dicey situations. One one that I was thinking about not necessarily put you in fear of physical danger to yourself, but just general. Um, I, I can't remember if you were chasing somebody or in my mind, I thought you were responding to a call of like a little girl who was hurt and you were running there. And oh. when you got there, you realized your gun was missing. Yeah. What, yeah, what, what actually happened there? Um so yeah, I was I was working a day shift, and so I was getting off at three, and I was just pulling, just starting to head toward the police station, and I get this call, or I hear this call go out for you know one of these very non-specific you know unknown disturbance calls. In other words, somebody called nine one one, and the dispatcher could not make heads or tails out of it, but the person is obviously. There's there's a problem. So just screaming like general, yeah, that it type like of thing. There's chaos going on. There's chaos, unspecified chaos call, and so that sounds fun. The dis yeah, those are all you know. You never know. <laughs> you never know what you're rolling into, and so the the dispatcher said, you know, unknown disturbance, and it was at this park, and it was a little kids park, and it was fenced all around, um, specifically because it was a little kids park. So it was a fence all the way around, but in one corner, there was an open gate. And so it was an unknown disturbance call inside that little kid's park. And I thought, oh, that's not good. And I was close. I was close enough to where I just whipped around and I took the call and drove in, got up to the gate, bailed out of my car. And um, did we lose Jim? Oh, no, I think. No, I'm I'm still here. Okay. So anyway, I bail out of my car and. Because the park is large and there's only one entrance, I, I went in the I went in the gate, the open gate, and then I had to run down through the park to get to where I could see a little knot of people crowded around. And it turned out that it was a twelve year old girl who had dropped with a heart attack. And there was a guy doing very ineffective CPR on her when I got there. And so I just told him to step, you know, step back. And I, I went down and I tore the girl's shirt off. And as soon as I did, I could see she had a scar. She had had open heart surgery previously. And I started doing CPR on her. I'm on my knees. She's on the ground and I'm doing CPR on her. I called it in. You know, we had an ambulance coming and, and, um, it's, you know, of course, when you're doing CPR like that, it feels like the ambulance takes forever to get there. And so the ambulance crew shows up. I'm soaking wet from doing CPR and the sweat's just dripping off me. And the ambulance crew gets there and they take over and I rock back on my heels because I had been kneeling down. I rock back on my heels 
and I instinctively pull my elbow in, I, you know, you're always checking to make sure your gun is there with your elbow. You know, you just always, you're always bumping the grip of your gun with your elbow. Just, it's just something you do all the time. Six cents. And I, I, I pull my elbow in and I don't feel anything. And I look down and my holster's empty. And I had been having problems. It was a new holster. I'd been having problems with this holster. I was carrying a nine millimeter. It's a, it's a semi-automatic handgun, 16 rounds in the magazine, one in the gun. So this gun, so, um, you know, the gun's gone. I look down the whole, you know, holster's empty and I look over and, you know, my backup officer had just showed up. It was the same guy. It was Gary, interestingly enough, from the last story. And I look over at Gary and I must have had panic in my face. And I, cause I said, Gary, I lost my gun. And he reaches around and he pulls it out of his back pocket and hands it to me. And he says, I found it on the trail coming in. And like I said, I'd been having problems with this holster. It just didn't seem, the gun just didn't seem to fit right. And I guess when I took off running at some point bouncing around, it bounced out still. Had the, wow. still had the strap and everything on, but somehow it had bounced out. And, oh, the relief I felt was tremendous because the last thing I wanted was a handgun floating around a little kid's park. Yeah. You know, and so as soon as I got back to the station, I, I got rid of that holster. And I actually changed guns for a while until I could have a, uh, a leathersmith fix that holster for him, but oh man yeah i would have thrown that damn thing in the trash did you what, uh, what would have happened if you would have lost it like besides the thought of you know it being near a children's park would you gotta would would you have caught a rash of shit from your supervisor or your whoever was like the watch commander like oh you lost your gun like yeah I imagine that that would be a, a fun experience yeah no that that wouldn't go over well um <laughs> You know, it's, I mean, things happen, uh, you know, but something like that, it's, it's, um, you know, it, it was just, it was just one of those things where I was so grateful that, you know, Gary was coming up behind me and happened to see it in the dirt, you know, picked it up and then handed it back to me. And um, I had never, I had never had that happen before or after there was just something glitchy. And you're right. I did get rid of that holster and I just had another one, <laughs> yeah. but I had, I had, an, I got another one and I had it modified. So, you know, it really held the gun. Of course, now, you know, most, most holsters aren't leather, you know, they're Kydex and guns snap in and out. And they're, they're much more technologically advanced. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, back in the day, all that, all, all your leather gear was actually really leather. So was that when you switched over to the, the 38 that in your later years you would carry in your purple fanny pack, even including to places you weren't allowed to? <laughs> oh. Oh. Well, I don't know about that, but, um, yeah, I actually, I actually put that nine millimeter in my locker for a while and went back to a, a Ruger 357 that, you know, I, I had carried when I first started and, it felt weird, but I thought there's no way, just like Jim was saying, there's no, there's no way until I could get, you know, a new holster that, <clears throat> you know, I just, I just switched and, uh, well, cause crazy. this was back, this, this was back in the time where you didn't have the department issuing everybody Glock 19s. You could, you could carry kind of whatever you wanted. 
within reason? Yeah, you most of the guys either carried a, a Smith and Wesson model fifty nine, which was a first generation nine millimeter gun. They had fifty nines, six fifty nines, and then fifty nine oh six different generations of, of the nine millimeter. They're a good gun. Uh, or so you that, could carry. Yeah. So that's the kind of period where it, it, tra- it changed from, I don't know anything about guns, but like the, mm-hmm. the shick, the six shooter style, like barrel to the yep. clip style, the more square hard yes. edge. Yeah. A lot of guys, a lot of guys were still carrying revolvers, mm-hmm. six shot revolvers. Did you ever know anyone that wore those badass, like from bullet, uh, the, the, uh, arm straps where the, the gun goes here, like oh, shoulder your, holster. Your, yeah. Those yeah. Are so cool. Yeah. A lot of guys who would work plain clothes would carry in a shoulder holster. I found them really uncomfortable. Yeah. I can um, imagine it doesn't feel nice. You no, know, your arms don't hang, you know, you're, you kind of walk around like an ape. Um, <laughs> Cause you, you'll have the gun on one's under one arm and then under the other arm is generally a couple of, speed loaders or magazines or your handcuffs or something. And so it's just really awkward feeling. Um, and it's an odd way to draw a gun to, to go all the way across your body to mm-hmm. grab it and then come all the way back. Um, yeah. It's not right on your hip, like boom, but boy, does it look cool. Yeah. Well, and you had, <laughs> you had a partner that carried like the dirty, hairy 12 inch long monster, 44. right? Yeah. Yeah, and it would take him he, forever he to get it. Out. It would take forever to get out of the holster. Well, he would carry. He would. He carried a nine on his gun belt, and then he would carry his forty-four magnum, his dirty hairy gun, in a shoulder holster, <laughs> and then put a you know put his coat. If it was cold, he'd put his coat over it. Don't ask me why. <laughs> you know, but thought it was cool. Um, he thought it was cool. Cool factor. Yeah, that, yeah, you can only get away with that in like a really cold city and not have it be like bulging out, you know, like you, right somewhere where you wear a coat normally. But yeah, yeah, yeah I always thought that was cool. Like uh, Murtaugh from uh, Lethal Weapon. That's the oh, style yeah. he had. I always thought that looked su- just super cool. Yeah. Um. So we're getting to almost the hour and a half mark. I'm cool to keep going if you guys want to for an- another little spill here. Uh, how are I you just, guys? Feeling? I just had a couple, a couple more little stories I wanted to ask him about, and then I feel like we Let's would be at it. a be at a good stopping point before we get into the Secret Service stuff, which is really interesting and I think worthy of its own entire episode. Um, yeah, I'm fine. So, yeah. Okay, so I, I don't remember if this happened when you were. Uh, a cop or a paramedic, but it, it's a horrifying sounding suicide or suicide attempt. I'm not exactly sure. the The cocaine knife oh, guy yeah. did that cocaine guy live? Knife guy, man. Oh no, no. Oh, was I, that when you were a cop or when you were a medic? Yeah. Matter of fact, your mother was riding with me that night before we even got married. Oh yikes! I showed her. A, I showed her a good time. Yeah. <laughs> That's um, one way to to win her over. You want to go along and ride along? That's awesome. Oh, man. so did she see what happened? No. Okay. No, I wouldn't let her get out of the car. Um, so yeah, do you want to you want to tell Jim <laughs> about that? Yeah, it was <laughs> it was a bizarre um, what turned out to be a suicide, um, and I it took a little convincing of me. 
it took a little bit for the for the medical examiner and the coroner to convince me this was a suicide. But you know, I guess I guess his conclusions were persuasive enough that our homicide detectives didn't get involved. But anyway, get a call, and I don't even remember what the call was. You know, something, uh, you know, something suspicious, and and to access this guy's room. Um, and, and this was typical of a college town where you might have a house, what would otherwise be a normal, you know, single family dwelling, which is broken up into discrete units. Yeah, like basement little, or like a, a mother-in-law unit or something in the back. and Or they piecemeal some of the rooms yeah. in yes. the bigger house. Because yeah. this was in the middle so, of college town, right? Like it's middle like 915A, 915B, whatever. Right. And so this was a this was a house, but where this kid lived, and he was a young guy. He he had to go through the alley, and then you know go through the backyard and and enter his room through what would have what was the old sliding glass door of you know the back of the house, but that was his room. And I, I don't remember what the nature of the call was, but I got it was nighttime, and I got sent out there, and so I park in the alley and go through and I because it's a still it's a sliding glass door and I can see inside there's a guy laying there on the ground um and naked and he's face down more or less face down and so I go in and there wasn't a lot of blood everywhere but this guy was covered in stab wounds and they were all on the front of him and they were all on the left side and what so I'm I'm kind of astonished when I'm looking at this thing, like there was a ton of stab wounds. Some of them were deep and some of them were really superficial. Um, long story short, um, this guy had broken up with his partner and just decided he was going to end it all and had started taking uh, massive amounts of cocaine. This guy snorted so much cocaine that it was coming out of his tear ducts. Oh, oh damn. And I could I could see that. And so he started stabbing himself, and apparently some of the self-inflicted wounds um, hurt because he was packing those with cocaine. So the coroner found a number of his more significant stab wounds packed with cocaine. Oh, he had a, almost a lethal amount of cocaine in his blood system, and his nose was just full of it. It was coming out of his eyes. <clears throat> of course, when I get there and I see this, I'm thinking, well, it's a homicide, you know. Somebody stabbed this guy. Turned out he had 54 stab wounds oh my to his torso. And as the coroner explained it there, the guy was right-handed. All the stab wounds are on the left side. You know, one apparently one knife made all the stab wounds. Um, you know, they're, they were convinced it was suicide. Maybe it was. I don't know necessarily that he may have been alone. I think there might have been somebody there when he started this stabbing frenzy, but that was just speculation on my part. But it was it was so bizarre that it, you know, I thought, yeah, I wonder, you know, but yeah, I, yeah, I would that's lean crazy. Towards a, a suicide kind of or just taking it out on yourself kind of thing. Maybe yeah, I don't know. I mean, I assume they found yeah. the knife at the scene. There wasn't anything. Oh, still in his hand. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that was, 
I mean, there were a lot of factors that kind of fit the scenario of self-inflicted stab wounds, but, you know, I'd never seen, I'd never, I I don't think at that point I'd ever seen anybody kill themselves by stabbing themselves. I mean, I went to a lot of suicides, uh, hangings and gunshot wounds and overdoses, but I'd never seen anybody stab themselves to death. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I've heard like hesitation marks can be a hallmark of that and, and. You're absolutely right. And I think that's what the coroner was keying on was that there were a lot of little superficial, like you say, hesitation. And then some of the deeper ones, he took the time to pack them with cocaine, which I thought was an interesting, you know, thing. The only reason I know that is actually, I remember, what was that singer, Elliot Smith? Yeah. Who killed himself with a knife and he was having a a thing going on with his old lady and and they found hesitation marks. I, I actually think about that one. And were, weren't you saying there was something about that that made it look like maybe it could have been her, his, his, well, not ma- I mean, it, it was, he was a high profile musician. So there's always going to be some like rumor surrounding his mm-hmm. death. Right. But it's been so long since I've thought about it. I thought the, the controversy was there wasn't any hesitation marks and there were there oh was, yeah maybe that's what it is and there was two yeah, and then i was like what's a hesitation mark and then you explain like oh yeah you know like and f- from what i remember it, it was very rare that someone just does it and successfully the first time and just stabs himself one or two times deeply it's like uh you know well, and it was it was two stab wounds both to the heart so i don't know if one person would i guess presumably they could survive long enough to stab themselves again in the heart. But yeah, it was, it was kind of a bizarre thing that now has like a weird sort of cult. Yeah. Hmm. Sorry though. That's a huge tick of mine that, uh, at some point in this, I would have to pull us off on a huge tangent. So oh, that wasn't, uh, that wasn't bad at all. Okay. Uh, so one cool. more little fun palate cleanser. <laughs> uh, you were telling me about a time you were investigating a burglary of a pharmacy. And the oh, gentleman yeah. left behind a, a little bit of a calling card, which helped solve the crime. <laughs> yeah, it's it, it was it's not an uncommon thing for a burglar to leave, like to lose their wallet in a house or a building when they are burglarizing it. That's happened a few times. But this guy was breaking into a pharmacy, and he did it by. Uh, going to the side of the building, which was not visible from the street, and it was a cinder block wall, as I recall, and he brought a duffel bag full of tools, and he was basically cutting his way into the wall. <clears throat> and I don't think he made it in. I can't remember, but at some point, he got scared away. Maybe the alarm went off. That might explain why I was there. Um but when I rolled up, I could see where he had been working and may have gotten in. I can't remember, but, you know, big, big hole or almost a hole in the wall. But the duffel bag was a Navy bag that had his name on it. <laughs> and so <laughs> what, what it had a name on it, which turned out to be him, you know, and um, wow. um, so being the trained investigator that I was, <laughs> I took that as a clue. But. So, I mean, we had a starting point. We had this duffel bag with this guy's name on it. And then there were some surveillance cameras and it was, it was easy to put him there, but that was one of those that makes its way around the police department. Everybody gets a good laugh over it. (laughs) Yeah. Do you, do you find most criminals to be just generally stupid or impulsive or what, what's your take on that? 
Um, I think you have. Well, I mean, if they're good, if they're good at it, they don't get caught. They don't get caught. Yeah, (laughs) I I think I think you have the whole spectrum. I think you have some that are stupid. Uh, You you know, you have some that are impulsive, uh, like you say. Um, But I I think what trips a, a lot of people up, you know, like like Jim said, if you're good, you may not get caught. But I think what trips a lot of people up is kind of the law of unintended consequences that they they haven't. They've thought about it and they've planned it, but they haven't thought through all the various things that can trip them up. And it's usually odd, unanticipated, a witness happens by that shouldn't, or there's just some weird thing that provides law enforcement a clue that mm-hmm. leads to their you know, arrest and conviction that they may have planned it and they may have thought about it, but this just were too many f- unknown factors that they couldn't control. And that's what trips a lot of people up. Yeah. I think you have a probably the spectrum is probably if it's a bell curve, that's probably the wrong kind of visualization, but I'm sure a fat chunk of it is just pure stupidity and maybe impulsivity in there. And then Mm -hmm. there's like quote unquote good or good at what they do. Uh, criminals that just get shit out of luck, like wrong place, wrong time. Like you say, yeah. like someone just something yeah. that they can't factor in, which is why, like, I mean, I like a good conspiracy and I think it's, it's entertaining and fun to think about, but there's so many variables in the world just in general that like to pull something off perfectly, even if you have it quote unquote perfect, there's something that you would never think of in a million years and it happens, you know, like right. Murphy's law kind of thing. Uh, yeah. yeah it kind of reminds me of, uh, Stephen and I went to a seminar one time on, on, uh, use of force. And there was a, one of the scenarios the instructor was talking about was a, a shooting that occurred in the parking lot of like a Seven Eleven, And the, you know, the point of the debrief on that was whether or not this was a good self-defense shooting. It wasn't law enforcement. It was, you know, civilian versus civilian and a gunfight broke out. And But the guy who did the shooting um, took off after shooting the car, the car next to him, the people in the car next to him after shooting them, he took off and probably would have gotten away. But for a homeless guy. Yeah hiding behind a dumpster who cops the plate on the car as the guy's driving away, sticks around and gives it to the police and they, they track down the shooter. And it's like, it's that kind of thing that even the most well laid plan is going to go awry because you didn't anticipate a homeless guy hunkered down behind a dumpster who has the mental morning. wherewithal, <laughs> you know, he had the mental wherewithal to rem- you know, memorize your license plate. Man. Yeah. You know, it's just, it was crazy stuff like that. But I'll tell you the other thing that trips most people up and, you know, this is your garden variety run of the mill criminal that, you know, I would deal with as my bread and butter every night um, is the guy who's drunk or on drugs. And, yeah. you know, that alters their behavior and their judgment and they get right. caught because they're, I guess maybe they fall into the category of stupid. Right. Yeah. You know. Stupid by proxy. <laughs> so, the, so the last, last story I wanted to ask you about, this was one that Ryan suggested. And when he mentioned it, it sounded familiar. I think we might've talked about it recently, but 
I don't have it locked in my memory. So I was wondering if you would mind retelling it. it it's about the woman with the shotgun who was like barricaded in her room or, or oh, she like yeah. surprised you. I'm, I'm trying to remember. I think I might be confusing multiple stories, but do you know which one I'm talking about? Yeah, that was, that was kind of a, um, I think the call we got on that was like a distress call, you know, that this person was threatening suicide, 5150 call, which was, you know, pretty common. It was in an apartment and she had barricaded the front door of the apartment, but the curtains were open and you could see inside the little living room. You could see she wasn't in there and the landlord was there and apparently he was the one who called and she was threatening suicide and, you know, was having, having mental problems. And so we're asking him, well, where do you think she is? We, we can look in the window and see she's not in there. And he goes, well, she's in the bedroom. And um, I, I can. So we go in and there's a little living room, kitchen, dining room, and then a little tiny hallway. And at the end of the hallway is the bathroom. But on the left is a door and on the right is a door. And I said, well, which one's the bedroom? And he says, the door on the left is the bedroom. And I said, well, what's the door on the right? And he said, that's a large closet. And so we go left, clear the bedroom. She's not in there. And so she must be in the, she must be in the closet and, you know, no report of weapons or anything. And so my partner and I, I think he's, he's in front of me. He opens the door and it's not a closet. It's another bedroom. And she's at the back of the bedroom holding a shotgun, this long barreled shotgun. And she's holding it kind of a port arms position, you know, so the barrel's pointing up toward the ceiling. And as soon as we open the door, she starts to lower the barrel. And fortunately, the guy in front, the officer in front of me, quick thinking, he just runs, you know, rams her. He just runs and hits her, you know, knocks the shotgun back up. I think he knocked it out of her hands. But the Man, two of so them, he had to have been thinking quick. So as quick. soon as like the barrel starts lowering down, he just reacts. He just reacted, <sighs> you know, quick. That's a ballsy quick, move. Man, quick thinking, because if another second or two, she'd have had it leveled and pulling the trigger and she'd have got us, she'd have got us both. Man. So he hits her. I think the shotgun must have dropped, but they're now both laying on the He's on top of her, more or less on the bed. So she's on her back. He's on top of her. I come running in behind. She reaches around and grabs his gun in his holster and gets it out. So she's pulled his gun out, but it's she's got kind of an awkward grip on it. You know, she's going to have to flip it around to get her finger, you know, to get a good grip on it. But she's got his gun out and... You know, so I, I dove over the top of him and she's far enough away to where I can barely get my hand on it. But I, I got my hand up on the grip, uh, up on part of the gun. She's fighting, you know, the gun's going everywhere. Everybody's fighting. Uh, but I was able to get my hand on the side of the gun and push the mag release and it dropped the magazine out the bottom of the handgun. And on those 59s, you could not fire the gun if the magazine was disengaged. Oh, okay. So I so had even just, if there was one, one, one round chambered. Chamber. Yeah. Wow. That was, that was a safety feature on the 59 is that if you drop the magazine, even if you hit the magazine button and the magazine just moved, just clicked back two mm -hmm. or three millimeters, 
your gun your gun was disabled. And so anyway, during this fight, I was able to reach my hand over and hit the button and drop the drop the magazine enough. And now the now the gun is just it's just a, a just a bludgeon. You know, now we don't have to worry about getting shot. And we were able to get control of her and hook her up. And we took her fifty one fifty because she was having all kinds of mental problems. And um, but boy, afterwards, man, it you know I got with that the, the other officer and we were debriefing on that. And both of them were like, crap, you know. That could have gone bad so many ways. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's the other thing you, th- you, I'm sure it'd probably just torture you. You wouldn't get any sleep if you thought about each individual incident, like how many different variables, how many different things, if they just go a little bit left or right, you know, or up yeah. or down, like how, how an incident like that could play out. That's, yeah, that's that wild. one kind of bothered me a little bit because just, Seeing her leveling that shotgun, if the guy in front of me hadn't moved as quick as he did, and then, you know, then then the fight's on on the bed, you know, awkward, weird position, you know, and then she gets his gun out and it's like, shit, you know, now, now we got another problem, you know. Yeah. But, you know, so I went, I remember going home that night and just kind of sitting on the couch thinking, man, that could have gone bad so quickly, so easily. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because well, what do you do? You, I mean, it brings you back to that. What's that fight, flight, or freeze? Yeah, the third yeah. alternative. Like, I wonder. I wonder. I found myself even... in a couple of situations where it's like, I I just freeze. You know, you think you want to like dive in headlong, and like you know, sometimes you do, and sometimes you swerve left, and it's it's not, you know. Yeah, yeah. I want. I wonder if he even thought about it, or if it was just like a reflex, like. I just have to dive at it because yeah, you could see jerk. You just hesitate for a split second. And I mean, what it would take a quarter of a second for her to drop the barrel and pull the trigger. And I mean, there's no way you're going to be able to pull your gun in time. And then, and then, yeah, imagine if you're not able to drop the mag. Now your only choice is potentially get shot or shoot this woman. You know, that's not going to be good for anybody. That was a mess, but it was just, yeah, that that does seem like a, a, both, the guy reacting to the shotgun and being able to hit the mag release. Like those are two pretty big things, you know, like, cause if you hadn't, then you're, yeah, you're tussling with like a live gun. Like nothing good is going to happen. No, no, no. Well, I mean, thanks for coming on and sharing. I'm sure this is just like a small portion of all the, the crazy fun stories you have. And hopefully you'll come back and tell us some secret service ones that you're allowed to speak of and that you won't get a, a drone strike on your house in the middle of telling us yeah, about any of it. A, a, a plane clothes serving you a subpoena. Yeah. I think U- anything I do is Uber probably clothing. ancient history. You're just going to get a knock on the door halfway through. <laughs> oh, there's a couple nice looking well-dressed gentlemen at the door. Let me go answer it. <laughs> yeah, this was yeah. great. I, I wasn't, honestly, I wasn't sure what to expect. I was, I was pretty nervous going into it, but, uh, yeah, you seem like a really good hang Tom. And if you're game, I'd, we would love to have, I, I mean, Steve's your son. So, uh, Allegedly. <laughs> I'm sure that go- yeah. that's a foregone conclusion, <laughs> but yeah, we'd love to have you back. Cause, uh, I know we haven't this, I mean, the secret service stuff sounds pretty interesting. And if it's stuff you can actually speak on, I mean, I, I don't even know what that world I don't, I think most people don't know what that world consists of other than, you know, what you see on TV and like six guys jogging next to a, a president and, and mm-hmm. watching him. But, um, 
Yeah, that would be super interesting too. And I'm sure there's stuff we we've glossed over that we can maybe hit on next time too. Sure. Love to. Awesome. Sweet. Uh, one other thing b- b- before we start wrapping this up too is uh, as we got to, I've, I've known, St- I work with Steve for a ton of years. We've known mm-hmm. each other for 10 plus years and it's funny like stories that have come out during the, this past year doing this podcast of stuff that I had never heard from him. Uh, one story in particular concerning you, he said you didn't remember it, but maybe, maybe, uh, him mentioning it and and now rejogging your memory. He told me a story. I don't know how we got on it. I think it was during Halloween season. Oh. I was talking about yeah. uh, you know, <laughs> my daughter being like, like digging out the guts of a, a pumpkin, you know, it being gross and nasty. <laughs> and Steve said he had a similar event when he was a lad and he was poor. He was getting the guts out of the pumpkin and being maybe a little baby about it. And he said, you turned to him and you were doing your own pumpkin and you grabbed out some of the guts and you just ate it right in front of him. Just like a pure, just like a, a alpha move. Like there's nothing yeah. to be afraid of kid, you know, like right there. I was like, dude, this guy's, this guy's a hog. We got to have him on. For it was, sure, a, it was so savage. Cause I still remember the look on his face. Cause I was like, Oh, this stuff is so gross. And he just looked over <laughs> and the face was almost like, Oh no, this stuff is good. And just scooped yeah. it and took a huge bite. <laughs> And oh, so gnarly. And I can't yeah. wait because I, I, I have a son now. He's a year and a half. And he was like, you know, in diapers, didn't know what Halloween was. But I think mm-hmm. by this next one, you know, or maybe a couple down the road, I can't wait. I hope he just starts bitching out on a pumpkin and, and start acting like it's all. Ugh. And I can't wait to steal that move because I'm I'm doing it full force. That's funny. Yeah. Stephen <laughs> had mentioned that a while back. I, I don't remember doing that, but. <laughs> Sounds right. <laughs> I guess I that's did. Su- that's such a power move. Like, oh man, that's awesome. It'll be even funnier <laughs> if Jim, you go to do that to assert dominance over your kid, and then you just start puking all over the kitchen. Yeah, and then I just <laughs> it just totally talk about your all time backfires. Yeah, huh? <laughs> funny. It it could go that way, man. For as much as I try to bow up, I am I can be a tenderfoot when it comes to certain things, but um. Cool. Well, thanks again uh, for coming on. Love you. Looking forward to the next one. Love you too, honey. Anytime. <laughs> oh yeah. Uh, congrats. Well, I mean, I know I didn't have the opportunity sooner cause I've never met you before, but congrats on becoming a, uh, a new grandfather recently. Yes. Very exciting. Awesome. awesome. You digging it? Oh, I love it. Nothing quite like it. <laughs> That's awesome. And how much older is your brother than you, Steve? Just because I never had, is it two years? You four guys are pretty years. close or no? Just under four, four years. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. I'm glad. Uh, shout out to your brohan as well for uh, uh, leaving us some crumbs on this trail, some stories to, to uh, revisit. Yeah. Um, we have yeah some, I'd, I'd some love good to have ones you back coming on. Up this too. was a great time, Tom. I appreciate you making the time and, sure. and, uh, and regaling us. So, um, uh, yeah, again, uh, we just released our anniversary episode, our basic instinct, check that out. Um, if you want to reach out to us, if you have any questions, uh, for Tom, sounds like we'll have him back, uh, for, or for us in general, you can reach out to us at wax at waxing or either of our socials. Uh, Instagram is waxing the porpoise and Twitter is at waxing the porp. 
next week looking forward to next week what do we have next week oh uh we're gonna have staring john back we're gonna cover skyfall our second part in the James Modern Bond, the day. Daniel Craig era James Bond retrospective that we're doing with resident Bond expert Staring John. We are skipping Quantum of Solace just because, just for timing reasons and because it's one of the, the weaker entries, I feel like, in the Craig era. Um, I'm super excited to talk about this one. This is probably my favorite James Bond of all time. Granted, I haven't seen all of them, so take that with a grain of salt, but it's awesome. It's a great one. Tom, are you uh, a big Bond guy, or have you seen any of the newer ones with Daniel Craig? No. Steven will tell you, I'm not much of a TV or movie watcher. At all? Not really. Okay. Fair enough. Yeah, it looks, from from the from my view, it looks like you, you're a big book guy. Oh, yeah. So good on you. I, yeah. I wish I was more. It's just so easy to fall into the trap of just putting on the boob tube. <laughs> Well, good. Well, thanks for having me on and I'll look forward to the next one. Yeah. Excellent. Thank you very much again. I appreciate you. And uh, yeah, thank you guys for uh, tuning in. I appreciate you. We'll catch you on the next one. We'll see you when we see you and we'll see you later. Later.